episode 153 of some like it scott i'm your host scott harvey and i'm joined as always by my co-host scott shelton today on the podcast we take a bumpy ride down the amazon in our review of the new disney live action adventure jungle cruise but first how are you scott doing pretty well can't complain you know i was i feel like i, I don't know if i actually said this on air or not but i've been quite excited about jungle cruise for several weeks i've been in the mood for something adventurous and of the theme of something, you know, early 20th century type adventure style movie. And I won't spoil my thoughts just yet. So I was excited going into the weekend. But uh, yeah, just overall, I haven't gotten to see many of the movies that came out this past weekend besides Jungle Cruise, but very much looking forward to sort of the trifecta of other movies that came out, which is Green Knight, which I know you saw, uh, I think yesterday as well. Mm hmm. Then Nine Days, which was on my most anticipated list for the year, which also came out at least limited release this yeah. past weekend. And Stillwater, which I think I'm not quite sure how to feel about, but I'm interested to see it for myself to see uh, what my judgment is. Because Tom McCarthy, as a director, is a compelling director most of the time. So I am curious how that story gets handled. But so exciting weekend of movies in spite of... It's seemingly every person who has an opinion saying that movies are basically done, it seems like, because of all the failed box office and rising COVID rates again. But I mean, movie releases compared to last this time this time last year, man, things are looking rosy. <laughs> yeah, no, I did a, a double feature yesterday with uh, Jungle Cruise and Green Knight. I first time I'd done that in quite a while, and I will say there were good crowds at both of my at both of the movies. So oh, that's great. Um, yeah. I don't know how it'll pan out for the ultimate numbers, but um, yeah, I mean, it certainly didn't seem abnormal what I saw, especially for a Saturday. I mean, you'd expect big crowds on a Saturday and yeah, that that's what, um, that's what I got. But yeah, you know, it's interesting talking about your interest in Jungle Cruise. I think I'm kind of in the same boat as you. Like I, as time went on, as it kept seeing the trailers or whatever, like, of the two movies, Jungle Cruise, Green Knight, like if you'd asked me like a year ago, which movie are we going to do on the podcast for this week? I'd have been like, oh, Green Knight. Absolutely. You know, it's A24. It's, you know, David Lowry, all this stuff. Um, but I think like, you know, as the weeks went on, as we got closer to this actual time, I was like, oh, Jungle Cruise. I mean, if this, you know, lives up to, um, you know, the great sort of adventure movies of yesteryear, this could be a sure. really fun one. Uh, and, the you know, the Green Knight trailers the green Knight trailer didn't necessarily like grab hold of me again. High fantasy is not always my type of thing. Sure. Um, but I will say I did see the movie last night. It is one of the best movies of the year. You can believe all of the hype that, um, yeah. that critics are bestowing upon it. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's out there. It's, it's certainly out there. Don't go to it expecting, you know, Camelot, um, a nice sort of yeah, king, a king Arthur. Exactly. I mean, yeah. King Arthur is in the movie. No, uh, I know, but Sean, don't don't expect that. Plays a great King Arthur type. movie, but um, yeah. but yeah, no, this is very much an A twenty four David Lowry, very psychological, very deliberately paced. Um, yeah. Not a lot of dialogue, very surreal. 
um, experience. And yeah, I mean, so of course, I think a lot of the people in my theater did not get what they were expecting. Um, oh, really? Interesting. Oh, yeah. There were there were laughs at multiple times and kind of like Midsommar, right? There are points when our, which I think are intended to be funny in the movie. But there were also some very sort of immature laughs at um, other times at certain things that happened in the movie. Again, I'm not going to say that much because I know yeah. you haven't seen it and a lot of listeners probably won't have seen it. But And very, very um, excited to see it, to, to be clear. I This is probably, yeah. I mean, maybe the trailers didn't vibe and click so much with you, but every time I've seen something else or some new piece of content or trailer from this film, I'm like, man, this really feels like it's going gonna, it's gonna to hit when I see it. Yeah, I mean, it's one that is still on in my in my head for sure. I, you know, if the time allows, I do want to try to see it again before it leaves theaters because I think this is it, it's definitely it's a thinker and it's one that I feel like will grow on you the more you think about it and mm. you know possibly watch it again. So yeah, it's not something that you can just easily digest on the first watch for sure. But highly, highly recommend Green Knight um, if you know you're looking for something a little bit different. I feel like. Yeah, you know, we talked about Zola, obviously, which was kind of off the beaten path, but um, it felt like the first real movie I'd seen in um, a little bit in terms of like, you know, big, um, not, I don't want to say the word blockbuster, but, you know, uh, you know what I mean, kind of an event movie in a way, I guess is what I was, uh, is the phrase I was looking for. I mean, obviously, I loved something like Summer of Soul and Sparks Brothers and whatnot, but, you know, those those aren't event movies, though. Yeah, those yeah. are those are documentaries. Um, this, you know, it, it. I don't know. It just felt like we've been on a little bit, a little bit of a disappointing run with, um, yeah. you know, with Black Widow, with F Nine, with, um, you know, old maybe not quite being as good as I was wanting it to be, um, mm-hmm. and you know, maybe just some of the summer movies not necessarily delivering, but Green Knight certainly did. So. Yeah, I know. I know. I feel more strongly about this movie than you did, but I, I think that the only summer film that we've gotten so far that is that has truly delivered for me would be a quiet place part two. And I know I feel more strongly about it than you do. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I don't agree with that, but I mean, it is, it is better than some of the movies that I just named. Yeah. I mean, I think that that movie is better than any of the other summer films, you know, that, that we've talked about that we've seen. And I'm expecting and hoping if, that, that a green, that the green Knight surpasses that. Yeah, if we're not counting Zola, I think I agree with you. I, I mean, I, I don't call Zola an event, an event, like a summer blockbuster, but I, I, sure, do, yeah, I do take sure. what you mean. Yeah. Okay. Well, a movie that I think we can both agree is a blockbuster and an event yeah. film is Disney's Jungle Cruise, which is our movie for today. The latest based on a theme park ride live action film from Disney, Jungle Cruise is an old fashioned Saturday morning matinee directed by Jaume Collette Seurat. The story follows botanist Lily Houghton, played by Emily Blunt who has made it her life's mission to discover a mysterious tree called the Tears of the Moon, whose petals can supposedly cure any illness. After stealing an arrowhead she believes to be the key to uncovering the tree, Lily and her foppish brother McGregor, played by Jack Whitehall, follow a map to South America on the trail of the Tears of the Moon. In search of transportation for their dangerous quest, Lily and McGregor encounter a down-on-his-luck boat captain, Frank Wolf, played by Dwayne Johnson, who offers to take the duo down the river in his rugged boat. But the journey will not be an easy one, and along the way, the trio will have to outwit a tribe of cannibals, a host of deadly creatures, and a dogged German aristocrat, played by Jesse Plemons, who has his eyes set on the treasure as well. Scott, does Jungle Cruise provide a welcome return to rollicking adventure films of yesteryear, or is this boat ride a tourist trap you'll be begging to be let off of? 
Great question, Scott. I mean, because it kind of already been teed up, but I was really looking forward to this movie for all the reasons that discussed already. Don't need to revisit that since we just talked for a few minutes before we started here about my anticipation for the film and, and wanting it to be that return that you're talking about. Unfortunately, though, especially as time has passed between when I saw it, which was Friday afternoon uh, to now, I think I have really kind of soured on the experience. It was it was fun enough at the time, and I think I've gotten more negative since then. There's just it, it does kind of leave a bit of a disappointing taste in my in my mouth, um, you know, a few a few days after. And I think part of that is just the fact that I think that the 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 kind of the aura or the vibe i don't want to always talk about vibes of movies on this podcast but it didn't really seem to quite fit what i want out of an adventure movie that you know hits the five star or the upper you know four and a half five star limit on my reviews on, on letterbox you know i recently saw the uh, you know the raiders of the lost ark in in a theater for it's like whatever 40th anniversary or whatever it is um and you know i hadn't seen that film in quite a few years. And I was really impressed with how well, you know, sort of the adventure of it all ties together. It's fun. It knows how seriously to take itself. And I really enjoy sort of the, the lightheartedness and the seriousness that mixes in the film. And I just don't think jungle cruise strikes that balance in a way that melds those two things together. It's not even a balance really. It's like, it's almost like a chemistry, right? Like mixing the two together to create some sort of like, you know, final, final product or some potion that, that really strikes a chord and just something about it. it at times it feels too childish at other times. It feels like it's, it's like almost impossible to even comprehend what's going on. And I, and I think that it ultimately, I, I really did struggle to connect with the film at a level that kind of would make it certainly test the, the, you know, or I guess pass the test of time. But I think also part of it too, is that once you get into the second half of this movie, I was having fun in the first half of the movie. I was getting to know some of these characters. I was rolling my eyes a little bit. But some of the twists that the second half takes, the more that I think about it, the more I think they don't actually just they just don't work very well. Um, and you know, the ultimate resolution is like fine of that. But to avoid any spoilers, I won't go into that too much detail yet. But I do find that some of the the story turns the film takes ultimately left me in a place that I think actually maybe wasn't the right move for the story to take. And it could have been done better and ultimately just left feeling that like this, th this thing does not equal even the sum of its parts. It's less than the sum of its parts in many ways, which was a bit disappointing. You know, I haven't seen Tomorrowland or, I mean, I haven't seen Haunted Mansion in like 15 years, probably it's been so long since I've seen that movie. I can imagine that this is like maybe like marginally better than either of those films from my understanding of them but still kind of below the bar that I was kind of, I mean, like I wasn't hoping that the, I wasn't expecting this thing to be Indiana Jones, but I was trying to, I was kind of hoping that it would be better than it was. I mean, Tomorrowland has at least a, a visionary director and, you know, at its home with Brad Bird, but um, sure. you know, not to dog on Kalei Sarah because I, I mean, the shallows is good. So yeah, the shallows is very good. And some of his Liam Neeson movies are really not that bad, but um but yeah, I mean, you know, I was talking up front about movies. It seems like we've been on a little bit of a disappointing run here for at least for the big event movies. And I was trying not to include Jungle Cruise in that just because I didn't want to spoil my thoughts right there. But yeah, I mean, I absolutely would include that, that, that this movie in that bunch. And it's a shame, right? Because this feels like 
in concept, this is the movie that I've been wanting Disney to make, like the live action movie I've been wanting them to make for a while now. Because you watch something like National Treasure, you watch something like yeah. Pirates of the Caribbean, and it's like, why did Disney stop making movies like this, right? Like, you know, they're, are they all-time classics? I mean, Pirates of the Caribbean, I kind of think it's the first one at least. But, uh, but I mean, yeah, they're, you know, they're original. They're doing something interesting. It's not, you know, these lazy live action remakes. There's a real sense of adventure about them. Um, to your point, you know, Jungle Cruise could have been that. Like Pirates of the Caribbean, it's another movie based on a theme park ride. Um, to, to your point. And really obsessed but, with the undead. Too, too obsessed with the undead, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, but like this movie, yeah, it doesn't have any of the edge that Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, no. forget that movie was PG-13. And you could see why when you watch it back. Like there's some sort of dark, almost horror-like stuff in that movie. I mean, Barbosa's crew of the dead, like rowing, like that's just weird. Like it's, it's you know, offbeat stuff that you do not. You know. Disney, I feel like is never going to make an, a movie like that again. Like, and that's kind of what this confirms to me. I mean, like, I mean, in talk, if you talk about like Ed, like Cruella is like as close to that as you'll ever that, get. Okay, right? that, that's fair. I mean, that was a PG yeah. thirteen movie as well, I believe. Um, but that's the best you can hope for, I think. Sure. I mean, sure. I really liked yeah. Cruella. That was, I thought it was a great movie, but or yeah, really good movie. No, that's that's a that's a fair shout. But yeah, I mean, this movie just isn't on that same level. And it, look, it's probably unfair to compare it to something like um pirates of the caribbean or indiana jones which are like the great adventure films um but this doesn't even measure up to like the mummy or um a movie that i like that is probably not that uh that good ultimately but that i had way more fun with than this sahara starring matthew mcconaughey um you know another sort of rollicking adventure movie um this movie's just it's safe it's boring it uh is childish in places like you said it just feels like it is trying to um you know just appeal to the most base audience of a disney movie and not to anyone really outside of that and so you know people will be satisfied i literally said to you after the movie uh, that this was the first movie all year where the crowd <laughs> applauded at the end of the movie and i think that's mostly because it was families like i sat right next to like a four-year-old kid during this movie wow, i'm um, sorry yeah, it wasn't great, but he was very excited. They're making an Adams Family sequel to the animated Adams Family. But um, anyway, yeah, I didn't right, so know. Is there not like twenty of this? I am just, I don't, I gotta, I gotta get more sharp on the Adams Family franchise, live action, animated. It seems like there's a lot. Going I do want to watch the live action ones because supposedly they're pretty good, and I loved watching the TV show back in the day. But anyway, uh, <laughs> you know, there were a lot of families and stuff like, yeah. and so you know, they're going to be satisfied because it's just there's nothing in here to be offended about or anything like that um and well, depends on what what your family values are maybe well, yeah, yeah yeah um but that's that's kind of why i just didn't care for the movie because it just doesn't feel like anything interesting at all it feels like yeah. a very disney-fied version of a good adventure film um and it's a shame because i think that emily blunt and dwayne johnson are great together like i, I honestly 100 percent that's part of the movie like they they have fun chemistry together. Like I do, I don't hate their characters. I think, you know, particularly in the first half of the movie, this stuff when they're bantering I totally off of each agree. other is a lot yeah. of fun. It really is like that. That is, like I said, the best part of the movie. Now, when they try to get you to buy into the relationship a little bit more emotionally, I think at the back half, and that didn't necessarily work for me, but um, sure. I think they carry the movie as far as they can with their, 
you know, charisma, which they both have a lot of. Um, yeah, I I definitely agree with that statement. But yeah, I mean, the the action isn't that creative. It's not that funny, no. despite no. the fact that a lot of people in my um, no. theater... Well, the, were, the humor is not your vibe. Well, okay. I, I don't mind the dad jokes and stuff that Dwayne Johnson saw. I mean, I did crack a smile at some of those. I mean, yeah. I feel like that is more of my humor, to be honest with you. I mean, oh, Airplane, is? Okay. Has a, Airplane is my favorite comedy of all time. That has a ton of jokes like yeah. that are like the ones that Dwayne uh, Johnson yeah. is telling. I mean, he, they about. really ham it up. I, I thought oh, it was yeah. hilarious, well, personally. So but... they, they do, but I, like the reason they're doing it is because they're kind of trying to make fun, I think, of like the actual Jungle Cruise ride, probably, and the, the tour. Yeah, that's right. guides on the boat who probably, you know, who may, you've been on these rides. I mean, we've all oh, been God, on God, it's been rides. so we long, know, but yeah. We I have know been. the types of, of jokes that these tour guides, um, yeah. tour guides make. And so I feel like they're trying to have some fun with that and have some fun with like the fact that the the people on the boat are like not having it at all whereas normally <laughs> you know they would just be like politely you know uh laughing yeah. along whatever just to be yeah. polite um you know they are like actively telling him to stop telling the jokes um and that's kind of a recurring bit so i don't mind that part of it but like yeah a lot of the other humor didn't work for me jack whitehall's character is a choice um we can we can talk about maybe one of the things they try to do with that character a little bit later on, which is interesting. But um, yeah. yeah, didn't didn't much care for him. Jesse Plemons doesn't really have anything to do except just kind of very literally twirl his mustache in a couple of scenes. Paul Giamatti is randomly in this movie. One scene, <laughs> two minutes. Uh, I was so confused because he showed up and I was like, oh heck yeah, Paul Giamatti! Like he'll he'll be great in this. Nothing. N no role whatsoever. No role. I have no idea why they put him in it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it's not that great of a movie. Um, I was disappointed with it. Because, again, Disney, I, I do want them to keep trying to make movies like this. But, like, let's think about Pirates of the Caribbean. Let's think about National Treasure. Like, those movies were a little bit weird. And there's nothing really weird about this movie. And that's what I wanted, I guess, in the end. And, you know, that's not what everyone's going to want. Certainly, again, I imagine the cinema score is probably pretty high for this movie because I think it's the a target minus. audience. Yeah, the target audience for it is probably, again, they're not going to, they're not going to be offended by it. They're going to go home saying, hey, this was a fun Saturday at the movies. Now, what I think, though, is that even those people, two or three years from now, are they still going to be watching Jungle Cruise? Are they still going to be remembering that this was a film that happened? I have my doubts. I think it's pretty forgettable, probably in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I mean, the most the most creative thing about this is that they have sort of like a Barbosa-esque squad of villains here. I mean, there are. It's concerning that that is the most imaginative part of the film, like the yeah, one guy with yeah. the bees and the design the of Edgar Ramirez's character is cool. Like with the snakes all coming out of his like that was that is like the one moment of inspiration. I will give them that. But like, but it's, it's crazy design, that they can't. But, that they can't get something in with the environment and the setting more in, like equally inspired, right? That that's the yeah. thing that confused me is that man, like the whole river Amazon setting, they didn't really seem to do very much with it. There's like this one, there's essentially one location in the film that takes advantage of it, which is this like weird treehouse village type of thing, which is like cool, but they just like I mean, that could have been anywhere. It just doesn't yeah, really wanted, feel like I wanted some more like natural dangers that they had yeah. to like, 
totally you know overcome it more, more so than i wanted this weird interlude with like the tribe of cannibals or whatever like which is which is also fake but that's like not even real yeah of course uh, it is it's all organized by dwayne johnson's character yeah which is some probably meta commentary on the ride like you were saying but i i do think that the like that that that, that is a big disappointment on the whole i do think that it starts to be a little bit interesting with the sort of the puzzle solving at the end when they actually get closer to the tree but there's just like not very much of that in the film and at that point this movie's over two hours long and there's no reason why it should be yeah i mean I, like i said and maybe we maybe i'm jumping ahead but like it the film kind of loses me after they arrive at the at the at the village at the treehouse type village and they're being interrogated that's where i uh you know that that was the point where we we topped out at where i was going to get in the movie unfortunately and from there it was sort of downhill i mean one of the most confusing things is that there's this whole subplot right after they escape from this sort of tree treehouse village, like I was saying. And the whole point of it is that they've gone inland. And so these, you know, these, these monsters can't track them inland because they have to stay within sight of the river and they just go right back out to the river. Like what? Like, it just seems like they turn yeah. right back around and go back to the river. I was so confused. I yeah. Know. I don't think they want you to think about it too hard, but yeah, no, that, that would be my final point is that this movie is much too long. The, the Green Knight, right, which I saw on the same day, that movie's even longer than this one. But I was so much, and it's slower paced, much slower paced. And yet I was so much more captivated of, with that movie because it's actually well made and interesting. Uh, whereas this, I was like, I checked the watch quite a few times. Um, yeah. I, I maybe maybe I'll watch The Lost City of Z to like try to make up for this. Yeah, no, that, that actually feels like probably the movie that we both... Yeah. wanted maybe from this but well yeah, no, i mean like i don't know i don't know james if that's a movie from jungle cruise but yeah i mean it literally is the james cray version of jungle cruise i feel like but i i, I think that it's like the, it's like the slow paced jungle cruise right like that's yeah. that's my vibe that's what i understand it to be at least yeah totally it's more about it's more of an interrogation on the yeah. exploration than it is an actual and psyche instantly it's a psychological yeah, drama type thing but anyway um, Scott, let's talk about maybe what is one of the more positive elements of the movie. Like I was saying, the lead performances of Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt. Obviously, you know, Dwayne yeah. Johnson, probably the biggest movie star in the world right now. Um, Emily I Blunt, yeah. um, you know, this is her second big franchise tentpole movie of the summer with A Quiet Place Part Two as well. She's definitely become a movie star now in, Absolutely. in recent years. Um these are the type of actors you would expect to see leading the bill of this sort of movie. Do you think they, uh, they lived up to their billing? I think that they do the best they can. That's, that's what I'm going to say. I think that Emily Blunt is absolutely right at home in this. I think that she kind of plays this character, frankly, of Lily to perfection, this sort of like haughty, but also kind of down to earth at the same time, British explorer who has been ostracized by people, it's almost like Missing Link kind of, not to be a weird callback, but like this, the Hugh Jackman character in Missing Link or whatever, right? Who's been like ostracized by this group of, you know, adventurers and stuff like that. And, you know, he goes out to like prove them wrong and prove that, et cetera. Like I got a similar vibe to that um, from this Emily Blunt character. And and I thought it, she did a really good job. Obviously, Missing Link was animated and a little bit more far-fetched. Well, I say a little bit more far-fetched, but I don't even know if that's true or not. They're equally far-fetched probably. Um, film. And... I do find that Emily Blunt sort of, like I said, lives in this character really well. Her development over the course of the film is kind of 
blah to me. I think that she's more or less the same at the beginning as at the end. The only one change is this sort of romantic interest in the rocks character, which doesn't do anything for me. I was rolling. Very my eyes. romantic interest. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't even think they kiss except for like in the underwater sequence where they're like, yeah, they're maybe giving each other their breath basically. Yeah. That might, that might be true. Maybe they kissed him like the last couple scenes or something like that. I don't know. After they, after she brings him back to life by, I don't even know, giving him the, Heart of the whatever tears of the I don't even remember what it's called. Tears <laughs> um, of the moon. Tears of the moon. There we go. Um, but that's just it. Didn't do anything for me. I think that this character is much more interesting if she is this independent woman who don't need no man type. But I guess she isn't that in reality because the Rock's dad jokes really softened her up. Um, not sure. But look, I think that she does the best she can with it because I, I mean that's not on her, right? It's not. It's. That's just how it's written in the script, because I guess a family movie has to have a romantic interest for these people, which is disappointing. And then The Rock, again, I think he's 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 kind of like weirdly enough, he's kind of like the I think he is really the perfect person to play this character in this like moment in time. Totally, I think he yeah. does, I think he does it really well. I think we had some conversation. I don't remember if it was on or off air where we talked about whether or not like I mean, The Rock is a huge star, but like, can he really carry a movie and make it good? Um, I don't know if this answers that question or not, but I do think he can carry a movie. His personality is so big that he can certainly carry a movie. He he really does own the screen, which I think is a credit to him. Just this character of Frank, again, when when it, when the twist happens with this character halfway through the film, it doesn't work for me. I I don't like it. I don't like that he, you know, spoilers here, but I don't like that he is this he's this other adventurer and from four hundred years previous, and he's. The same as them. Like I just don't think that I don't think it's that interesting at all. Yeah, that he's literally the person who drew the map that they have. Yeah, I mean, sure, uh, same same deal, right? I just think that it's stupid and, and a silly twist. To be honest, convenient. Well, yeah, very convenient that they then narrate this backstory to you about how it all got set up. This is not the kind of movie that needs to explain its backstory. Jung- Jungle Cruise and the like minutia of how you know Edgar Ramirez's um, character gets like tied up to a wall in the in the basin of a dried up riverbed. You do yeah, not I mean, need to I, explain how that happens. I, I agree with you, but also, again, let's bring it back to Pirates of the Caribbean. There's an a, incredible amount of plot in the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Like, sure. And, and they do create their whole mythology. Now, maybe it goes awry in the last few movies, but um, that is another thing about that movie that is interesting, and that is why it holds up, I think, because there's an, like really sort of epic sweeping like intricate story that's going on and at sure. least you know in the first couple of movies before that's it, definitely you know, true because a snake eating its own tail but yeah i mean like i i am not going to sit here and lie and say that i remember the intricacies of the pirates of the caribbean plot but i agree that it's super interesting i was definitely fascinated by it and i'm sure if i rewatched it now i'd feel the same way because it everything that i understand it it does sort of stand up to the test of time but with this, like, I don't know. Do you care about some like random ass conquistadors well, that's who like went through I, Brazil and the for, like four hundred years ago? Like, no, I don't because it's not a good movie because it's not well executed. Well, sure. But like yeah. again, in, in Pirates of the Caribbean, if you look, went down and looked at the the plot of the movie on paper, you'd be like, why the hell does a Pirates of the Caribbean movie based off a theme park ride have this much plot in it? That doesn't sound like it's going to be good at all. But the movie is well done, and so sure. you actually are like caught up in the plot by the end of it. So that's fair. I, I mean, I, I don't. 
But the first yeah, one, though, just, at, the, at the crux of the first one, though, it's like ultimately what really matters to make the film good. The, the lore is a bonus, of course, and that's what makes it amazing, right? But like what you care about is like whether you get invested in these characters and whether they deliver on like the yeah, plot circle I, that it that it draws. Yeah, I'm just saying the lore is not an automatic negative for a movie like this. Like that's fair. The, the fact yeah, that it tries absolutely. to have lore, it's just that they don't, it's not well executed here. So yes, I would agree with you. No, I don't care about Edgar Ramirez and the whole conquistador backstory, but I could have in a different movie, in a better movie. That that might be true. <laughs> I, I just found it to be, man, like, I mean, I, I know that is the whole like Jack Sparrow thing and Pirates of the Caribbean that he's like one of them too or whatever. And he has like, you know, he's a skeleton in the moonlight and whatnot. And that's like kind of the same deal with Frank, I guess, at the end of the day, that's ultimately similar. They they just, I mean, I guess just to say it plainly, they don't do it well. I don't think they do this character well. I don't find it super interesting. His like death wish is not super noble to me. All the character development feels very rushed. And it's a shame because in that first half of the movie, I do think that there is a there is a lot of promise. Uh, Emily Blunt and The Rock, they play their characters well independently and their chemistry is, is pretty magnetic in the first half. And it just falls apart in the second. Yeah, I... I'd have to agree. Um, Scott, the supporting cast here, you know, we've sprinkled a few names in our discussion. Sure. Uh, the big players are probably Jack Whitehall as McGregor, who's the other sort of member of this uh, traveling adventurer crew. Jesse Plemons as one of the villains here, the German aristocrat, Edgar Ramirez as the undead conquistador. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I mean, I guess if you want to mention him in there, Paul Giamatti <laughs> does show up as sort of this other he is there. riverboat cruises. who's kind of a rival to Dwayne Johnson, a financier in, in some sort, in, in some regard. But um, who stood out to you, if anyone, from the supporting cast? Well, unfortunately, you, you do uh, leave out, I think, what is probably the most key supporting character for me. It won't be for you. I understand that. But you have left out Proxima. The time, she yeah. she is the Jaguar, but she is the MVP yeah. of the supporting cast. Um, uh, did, did really appreciate the CGI Jaguar, although I was seeing a lot of complaints about it, be it like the CGI being really bad in this movie. I didn't super notice it. Someone smarter I feel like than I, I never can. When people say that, unless yeah. I'm like looking for it, like I just. Yeah, I do. The one time that it did really jump out at me is that there's some CGI fire in Black Panther that's horrible. I do remember noticing that when I saw that movie in theaters for the first time. So the that's CGI like the... fire in in Wildlife, the Paul Dano <laughs> movie, is the easily the best CGI fire you'll ever see. Is it? Is it not CGI? Is that why? No, it is. Did they burn a forest down? Is that why it's... we have forest fires in the West Coast? <laughs> Yeah, because of this Paul Dano movie. Yeah, exactly. Someone drank his milkshake and he got really pissed off. Yeah, um, yeah so I <laughs> jokes aside about Proxima, who I was a big fan of in, in this movie, I guess the, the supporting character that really does stand out is Edgar Ramirez for sort of like the sort of outlandish villain that he gets to play. Um, I mean, Jesse Plemons, I was hoping, kind of like Paul Giamatti, I was hoping he'd have more of a role, but frankly, he doesn't. And what he does is so, it's so one note that it's like hard to, Hard to really have any perspective on it. I mean, he's doing what he's told, I'm sure. And he has a couple of funny deliveries of his scene chewing moments. But it's nothing that I'm, I'm not going to remember this this performance from him a year from now. Maybe not even three months from now. But Edgar Ramirez, I'm a fan of it. It's pretty good. Um, I liked where where the performance he gave and it stood out maybe because 
you know, he is a member, sort of, I guess, sort of the central member of this, um, you know, what's the right way to, to put it? This, I guess, the this conquistadors, right, who have been dead for 400 years. Yeah. I never saw Gianni Versace, the second season of American Crime Story, but I did hear good things about it. I just never got around to watching it. The subject matter didn't interest me as much as the, the O.J. Simpson trial, frankly. But yeah, uh, I was impressed. Hopefully this is a springboard to get him into more movies because I don't think he's really been in that many you know, bigger projects. Jungle Cruise certainly being the biggest I think he's been in. Yeah, I'll be honest. Nobody really stood out for me in the supporting cast. Yeah. Jack Whitehall. Yeah, I, I, mean, guess, I guess we can talk about him now. They're just doing the same joke, really, just like over and over again with his character. about Oh, he's just this prim and proper, buttoned up, like yeah. uh, very, you know, particular um, type of fellow. And he's in this setting where obviously that's just an antithesis to that. So there's a lot of him just making faces about stuff that's going on. And, yeah. you know, his clothes getting dirty. and the exact type of jokes you would expect from this type of character. But the, but you know, the talking point of course about this character is that he is an openly gay character and um, has been ostracized from his family and like disrespected by society. Yeah, Emily Blunt's character is the only one who accepts him. When you hear that in a Disney movie, you, you probably would conjure up an image of, again, something like Avengers Endgame, right. With like just the most sort of tacked on like one line in passing um just to say hey we got an openly gay character in here and there is a little bit more than that for sure there he does have a yeah, whole definitely. scene of that with him and and the rock and you know it, it's meant to explain why his relationship is close with emily blunt's character because she's the only person who has um stuck with him through that um, and i thought that scene was good like that yeah. one moment was good just the rest of it i think there's something to talk about probably yeah, I, I just I just found it funny in concept that they chose to stick the openly gay character in this movie and not in Cruella, right? <laughs> Where that would have been right at right at home in a movie like Cruella. But I mean, you know, it's it is what it is. But I, I agree with you. I do think there's an interesting commentary though about in this moment in society, you know, being an elite and being ostracized by the you know by the community that you're a part of for what you are. My biggest problem is that not not that these the, this this couldn't be a real person in real life. I'm not trying to say that there aren't you know people who identify as gay who act similarly, but like, do you have to do these super stereotypical things with his character in this movie? Like, can't he be a gay man on this trip who's like not super into the trip, but not like over the top gay stereotypes like all yeah. the time? I just found it brutal. I'll be honest with you. I just don't even know if they were even thinking about that. Like, I feel like they had this character down uh, Maybe, on yeah. paper, like with all of these sort of, you know, again, trapping comic relief. I mean, he's a comic relief character for sure. Yeah, they had right. They, they put him down as a comic relief character as a particular type of character. And then they were like, you know what? We could make this character openly gay. Let's add a scene in there where he, you know, talks about his his backstory. Like, I don't even know. I don't even know if they went that far into thinking about the fact that, oh, also the, the comic relief character that we have created makes it look kind of homophobic also has a lot of stereotypical like has a lot of qualities that you see in stereotypically gay characters that have, you know, in the way that gay characters have yeah. been depicted. For look, look I'm, I'm not saying that like Disney needs to create a like Brokeback Mountain S character, <laughs> like really deep character development for Jack Whitehall in Jungle Cruise. But it seems like they can tone down the ridiculousness. (laughs) Yeah. And have the serious moment and and make it and drop, you know, 
more thoughtful lines into the film to suggest, you know, the, you know, the true nature, I'll put that in heavy quotes, you know, the sexual orientation of the character. That's not these like, just like really over the top gay stereotypes. Um, like I'm, I'm again, I'm not expecting some Oscar winning written role for Jack Whitehall here, but I think that there's some way to do it. That's the middle ground that isn't, that isn't cringy in a bad way while still getting this, I think again, kind of very poignant moment between the rock and, and um, McGregor. And Jack Whitehall is, is funny. I mean, he is a funny sure. yeah. person. If you are familiar with his stuff when he was across the pond, but um yeah, this role isn't isn't right for him or anyone really. It's just it's not particularly well thought out in my opinion. Um and and pretty lazy in terms of the the yeah. comedy that is actually mined from this character. So and just repeatedly um, so just over and over again. Yeah, I, I I just felt like that about a lot of the, the comedy. It felt like they just kind of had the same four jokes and were just doing variations on those for large parts of the movie but yeah so um, what happens when your movie's being made for like 15 years or whatever it was yeah uh okay scott i mean as far as sort of the story itself um you know you mentioned it takes some twists in the back half we learn yeah. that the rock is you know actually this undead sort of um person with all sorts of history with searching for the tears of the moon and that his yeah. brother is edgar ramirez's character um is and, that his actually is it his brother wow i didn't even catch that if that was the case yeah but i believe that that's that's uh i thought he was the son should... and like his father was like the chief medic or like like the medic for the crew i don't know it was complicated i thought it was supposed to be his brother but maybe i misinterpreted oh yeah no you're right the adopted brother okay. yeah okay yeah um adopted yeah brother. he turns out to be the brother he's the person who made the map um so there's all that um you know, then it, he's basically decided that he has accepted, he's accepted death. He's not going to claim that his pedal or whatever of the tears of the moon, when they get there, he's going to let himself rest after 400 years of searching for it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, because this is a Disney fight, you know, adventure movie again, that we have to have, Oh, look, he's actually died. He's turned to like stone here in this tree. Um, but Emily Blunt is going to use the one petal of the the you know one flower tier that remains the tree that remains to bring him back to life, and we're all going to live happily ever after. Um, I think I know your answer, but was that satisfying to you? It was not, Scott. I don't think that it will be a surprise to you at all, uh, to say the least. Like I said, this plot, man, it it, it really started to lose me after the sort of first confrontation between. Aguirre and the rest of, which, you know, and the conquistadors. Way, I don't know if, the, I mean, surely this was intentional, but Aguirre, it, like Edgar Ramirez's character's name is like the name of the freaking Werner Herzog movie, Aguirre, the wrath of God, which is also about sort of an exploration. Um, well, it, well it, that is a, so that is a real person. So he really okay, did explore okay. Brazil. So I'm sure it's related, but I don't think it's ripping I off see. the Werner Herzog movie. <laughs> <laughs> I've given it too much credit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, he, he, uh, I think, I mean, I think he's a conquistador who did die exploring the Amazon. Uh, so I think it is a real legend, but I'm not, I'm not hundred, I'm not hundred percent sure, but look, just like, like you said, because it's not done well, the whole exploration of this deeper backstory to Frank 
and how exactly the conquistadors came to be in more detail, you know, on the river, this rock, these like really sort of, you know, evolved monsters in a way. It just doesn't, it just does not captivate me at all. And the most interesting parts of the second half were solving, you know, the puzzle solving elements, the adventure elements of it, right? Those were the best parts of the second half. There wasn't enough of that, in my opinion, um, because it was filled with these sort of romantic moments that just landed as flat as they could have possibly landed for me. And because they spend a lot of time, again, trying to explain this backstory, it mostly doesn't even make any sense really to me. And the other part, again, is like they set up this backstory. They set up the fact that they can't leave side of the river. They Emily Blunt's character escapes away from the river, but then turns right back down around and goes to the river. I don't understand why they don't immediately get caught doing that. I don't, I literally, I just do not understand what happened. Yeah. You're putting too much thought into it. That's the obvious uh, yeah. solution. It's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I agree with you. I just, again, I, I was bored by that point. So I didn't really, I wasn't care. bored. Mercifully, I was not bored, but I was frustrated at times. Yeah. It's unsatisfying in many ways, but uh, Scott, anything else you want to add about this movie before we wrap up? More Proxima. Sure. What was your favorite scene or moment from Jungle Cruise? Yeah, you know, I, it's going to be something from the first half. I, as a sort of tone setter for the movie, I was like really excited, honestly, when one of the fir- first like quote unquote set pieces of the film is Emily Blunt sort of heisting this the arrowhead from this collection at the British Museum. Man, that was a great scene. I thought that scene was really awesome. I think it went like a little bit too silly at the end as she tries to escape. It built tension, and then I think it sort of relieved it in like a weirdly comedic way, which honestly set the tone for the movie in terms of how silly and and childish it felt at times. I don't, it, it, and unfortunately it went the wrong direction for me at the very end. But I did like that opening sort of introduction to Emily Blunt, and you know, I guess to an extent, her sidekick and Jack Whitehall. So I think I'd go with that. Um, you know, her sort of ghosting around this sort of archaeological room where they're cataloging these different artifacts i liked it it was the vibe that i kind of wanted uh throughout the whole film and then again by the end of the scene it sort of had taken a different turn but it was what i was looking for and i, and I enjoyed it quite a bit yeah i mean i agree with you that the best stuff in the movie is probably in the first hour i mean i i, I guess i would just point to some of the character moments you know the first sure. meeting between emily blunt and the rock is kind of a fun sequence at this mm-hmm tavern and agree um, yeah well it's his office you know, right it's the again Pro- proxima yeah yeah proxima plays a role because yeah. the rock basically has this whole sort of setup where he you know they're they're supposed to wrestle and you know then everyone looks at him as the big chairs um, hero but uh yeah so that stuff was was fun enough at least gave me at least made me feel like there was a promise for the movie but yeah. um yeah went awry pretty soon after that Sadly. All right, Scott, let's put a score on it. What do you give Jungle Cruise out of 10? Man, I will say when I originally put my letterbox review up, I think I was torn between three and the three and a half stars. I rounded up at the time. A couple hours later, I went back and lowered it to three stars. And I'm continuing to fall on that rating that's, as time goes by. So I think I'm down to two and a half at this point, at least in my head. So 5.0. Yeah, it won't be surprised if it's a little bit lower for me. I'm giving it a 4.2. Sure. It's just kind of a 
wet blanket. Like it's it's really just not much going on here that you haven't seen before that yeah. is really that interesting. Uh, the and, the contrast was stark to say the least between this and Green Knight of the two movies that I watched yesterday. Yeah, when you told me you were double featuring that, I was like, man, I wonder if he should do the other way around because you might just be like so disappointed after after the first one that you just go in with a bad attitude to the second. Yeah, I don't think I regret the way that I did it. Um, yeah. I mean, there's no reason I, to. I'd just I be curious what your response would have been the other way around. Like, I think you would have been riding the high of of the Green Knight. Maybe maybe the Jungle Cruise gets a little bit roast into glasses. Or maybe you hate it even more. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows which way it could go. Yeah, I could I could see either happening. But. Yeah. All right. Uh, that will do it for our review of Jungle Cruise. Scott, we're going to take a short break now. When we come back, a couple of news items, including the big news of the week, Scarlett Johansson's lawsuit against Disney. Uh, we'll be right back with those news items. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, a couple of news items to hit here before we finish this episode off. And the big news item of the week was, of course, uh, Scarlett Johansson uh, surprisingly has filed a lawsuit against Disney. Um, She is alleging lost wages, basically, uh, coming from breach of breach of contract, breach of contract coming from the fact that Disney um, did end up releasing Black Widow on their dual Disney Plus theatrical um strategy but of course her contract uh did not contain any provision about um you know potentially releasing the movie on streaming which i imagine hurt her ultimate uh gain from yeah the uh, back-end profitability movie yeah and so she has sued for breach of contract um in what you know many are describing as a big precedent setter uh scott what do you think yeah, so I think there's like a couple of different parts to this that interest me. And it will surprise no one. That this is the story that I wanted to talk about, given my business leanings uh, in the industry, because this is like I think this came out on Thursday and I was at I was actually at work, um, you know, next to my coworkers and reading this. And I was like pretty shocked this came through. My first reaction was, well, I guess she's definitely not coming back for any future projects. <laughs> she's suing Disney. Um, I mean, I guess it'd be fun, even funnier now if she did come back for another one. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it seems like this relationship is done and dusted. She won't be returning. That was my first reaction. And then my second reaction is like, wow, man, I can't believe that this is happening. Like, I can't like kind of confirming what there had been rumors of, I think, already in the industry is that, yes, there were there has been a lot of action in the last eight months, nine months since Warner Brothers announced that they would be taking their sweat, their 2021 slate and placing it on HBO Max day and date that they paid off, I mean, they paid hundreds of millions of dollars to their talent to keep them, you know, as satisfied as they possibly could that these movies were going to go directly to streaming. And I, and that is, you know, my understanding. Yeah. I heard Bugs Bunny got like a $100 million bonus for uh, Space Absolutely. Jam and New Legacy. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the dude, the, the rabbit's got to get paid. I've been saying it for years. Um, but... To our, I mean, this pretty much confirms that Disney has not done that. So Disney has taken a handful of movies. Mulan, the Pixar films are probably a different beast because it is just voice acting. People care a little bit less about that sort of stuff. 
Uh, I'm sure some of the I'm sure Jamie Foxx still probably raised hell about it on Soul and whatnot. But there's no one big enough in Luca really to give a crap, probably about that kind of stuff. You know, Raya had the dual release. Cruella had the dual release. Interestingly enough, Emma Stone rumored to also be about to sue uh, using the same the same means um, for however, her. Uh, however, The Rock has proved that he is a true company man because he came out and yeah. said he was not going to uh, to pursue anything over Jungle Cruise. So. Yeah, there's probably, you know, that that's maybe maybe file that away for a few moments and we can talk about maybe the inherent sexism of that. But we can. We can move on from there and say, I think it's pretty clear that Disney has not compensated their talent for the breach of contract, if that is what it is, but has not compensated them to keep them happy with these dual streaming theatrical releases that they have. Even And maybe even especially so, right, when you have a Disney model where they are releasing it and consumers are paying $30 to watch the movie. Right. Which is I mean, that is very clearly connected. You know, you can even one to one even to ticket sales. Right. A cut of which all these, you know, big, big A-list star talent actors and directors are getting a cut of Uh, a lot of their deals are structured in the way where they receive a portion of the profits on the back end of the film. And that's why you hear these absorbent budgets being um, required for Netflix movies. You know why these budgets seem absurdly high because they're paying out the back end, the traditional back end of these deals to their talent. And it seems like Disney has chosen to not do that and just to distribute their films in the way that they see fit. And according to Scarlett Johansson, that she was guaranteed uh, exclusive theatrical release in her contract. I obviously have no idea what's in Scarlett Johansson's contract, but that seems pretty cut and dry and not uh, left up for interpretation. If that is the case, um, in which case I think Disney is maybe in a little bit of trouble. I'm like, I'll be clear. I don't think this is going to go to court no matter who's in the right or who's in the wrong. They will settle out of court almost assuredly so. And I, I think that that would just be wild if this ended up actually going to court. But I think the more interesting thing, and I think it added a lot of fire to this, is Disney's response to Scar to ScarJo's con- you know to ScarJo's lawsuit, saying it had it showed callous disregard for the horrific and prolonged global effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, which I think is a crazy thing to say in response to I this. mean, yeah. First off, I mean, look, there may not be anything factually inaccurate. I do think it is a little bit of a dis. You could say it is a little bit of a disregard to that. Yeah, because but- that's obviously why Disney went to, this, to the dual strategy. But- exactly right, because Disney really, really wanted to keep people satisfied during the pandemic. And wanted to give them the option to pay $30 to watch a movie um, on their streaming service that people already subscribe to for seven to $8 a month. Now I think it is. So clearly they were obviously thinking very, I mean, look, it, look, putting their movies on Disney plus is a pro consumer move. Like don't, let's not make any mistake. That like, is a pro consumer move, but it's not like they're doing it only for the consumers. <laughs> let's not, it's not a, let's not pretend with that. So I just thought that was a, a, a very strong response, which honestly made me feel like, they were very certain that she did not have this in her contract and she did not have the grounds to stand on, to make this claim. I think it was stupid of them to make this comment. I think whoever, whatever comms person put the statement out, like m- might be in a little bit of trouble. Cause I think that uh, that's not going to win them any favors to be frank. It does bring up a broader point of like, you know, I, no matter whose side you're on in this, I don't know why you'd be on Disney's side. Like there's no reason to be on the side of big companies like Disney. 
whatsoever ever they screw people out of money left and right it's like what they're built to do um at the same time it's not like scarlett johansson's an underpaid actress <laughs> so it does make you wonder um you know One of the it, highest paid asian actresses out there for sure you're not wrong scott i've I've seen their seats. You know, I, I saw the trailer for Ghost in the Shell, although I didn't see the movie, but I uh, can confirm. But I it does it does I think it does beg the question though. It's just like, man, like is Scarlett Johansson like I, I think that the holding Disney accountable for their BS is like important, but is like Scarlett Johansson getting like 20, 30, 40 million more dollars, like really the fight that we care about as consumers. I'm like not hundred percent sure that that's the case. Um so I yeah, it, I mean yeah, I know. I I know where you're coming from on this. I feel like it's like a, you know, again though, it's, it's a precedent setter because there will yeah. be people yeah. much further down the bill who, you know, actually do rely on these. You know, well, th- those people further down people. the bill do not get cuts of the profit. Well, yeah, that that's fair. I guess I'm just thinking about it from like, like the the story that this made me think of was what went on with Taylor Swift and Spotify a few years ago. Sure. Um, yeah. With, you know, her claiming that they were not compensated, that artists were not compensated enough. And um, yeah, I mean, you can look at that whole thing and say, well, no, Taylor Swift doesn't need the extra compensation probably from streaming, but your local band down at the coffee shop, you know, absolutely. absolutely. Does it. Maybe yeah. the, the metaphor doesn't exactly track in the world of film but yeah i'm not um, sure that it does but i do see where you're coming from and i think that makes a lot of sense yeah i mean i think the point is that here this is another example of artists saying hey we're not just going to let you treat us like yeah crap because which is important know, which is very important or you know our name because because we're big because we're rich and famous basically we're not just going to let yeah. you um railroad us because this has greater implications for yeah you know, the industry as a whole. Yeah. And and to be clear, like, this is not like, I know this can be a little bit nebulous at times, but like, this is like Walt Disney proper, right? This is like Walt Disney Corporation, you know, corporate mouse talking, not Marvel Studios or even Walt Disney live action or Walt Disney animation. This is like, it goes all the way to the top. And how these contracts are structured and the strategies then that are used to distribute the films and profit off the films. So, I don't know if if ScarJo's burning bridges with the creative side of Disney, but it's it's quite a strong response to this. I found it a bit surprising. It is a little bit weird in my mind, even more even more so than the HBO Max day and date stuff where it's just getting dropped on the platform. For people to be like if you're if you're doing this premier access release, like that should be calculated as part of the profit for the back end of these actors and and it seems clear that it isn't. Um, which I find, I find that quite shady. Um, the more that I thought about it, that, you know, you're basically just releasing, you're using a different distribution method and you're not cutting them into the profit of that. You know, it's another thing if you're paying out the, the back ends of their contracts, like Netflix does, you know, like these other streamers do Apple TV being another one, these massive budgets to buy talents back ends out, um, up front. Yeah. It's just, to me, this, this is like the rich eating the rich kind of weird vibe to it. But it is really important to hold Disney accountable for this type of BS because I think it's absolutely problematic. Yeah. I'm just not sure that that trickles down in the same way that you're describing with Spotify because I doubt that, I don't know, who's playing Taskmaster in this. I doubt they're getting that. Black Widow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
I, I, yeah, I just don't think that these like random people playing, you know, these like other widows in the film, right, are getting a cut of like the profit of the movie. I just don't think that's happening. Yeah, no, you're you're probably right about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think uh, I don't have too many other thoughts on it other than that. Yeah, I, to me, clearly, Scarlett Johansson, Taylor Swift, whoever, they're the uh, the lesser of two evils in this whole scenario, right? Like. I agree. Yeah, maybe maybe they are stinking rich, but they're better than the uh, the corporate corporation and corporate greed. And absolutely, um, and like like I said, I don't think there's there's just no reason to ever defend a big company like Disney. Like they like Disney as a company will never be taken advantage of, like the way that talent is, that creatives yeah. are. It just it it just doesn't work like that. And so you know, I don't I don't see anybody out here like dragging scarlett johansson calling her like some i don't know like greedy insert derogatory female term here thing i'm sure that's happening out there but like disney does not need your like twitter defenses you know they that's just like <laughs> they're fine they they're making billions of dollars of profit and their business isn't even working um you know to its full potential because of the pandemic so they're they're doing just fine yeah uh also hopefully speaking of doing- disney yeah also hopefully doing just fine scott will be uh a new searchlight film yeah to your disney point that um we got some new news on this week i think this is probably expected maybe 2022 or 2023 Mm -hmm. um it is a a film called see how they run it was previously simply known as untitled murder mystery um but this movie has a title and it now has a cast uh and at the top of the bill of that cast, uh, two names which I look forward to in any we movie stand. that they're in: uh, Academy Award winner Sam Rockwell, Academy Award nominee Saoirse Ronan. Um, it looks like they're going to be playing maybe a couple of detectives here. There's a image that was released, sort of from the movie. It looks like uh, Saoirse Ronan might be playing some kind of cop, and maybe um, Sam Rockwell is more of a detective, but um yeah also so it's rounding rockwell's out. character is inspector stoppard and okay. sear sharon's character is an eager rookie called constable stalker which i think is a hilarious name right uh who done it <laughs> within the glamorously sorted theater underground which of the west like end of 1950s london yeah uh rounding out the cast david Oyelowo, adrian brody and ruth wilson um so some interesting names there to add to the supporting cast Director is, is a first timer. His name is Tom George. He's a, a Brit. Again, is you know seems like a pretty British film in general. Um, but um, yeah, I mean Scott, you know I think we both are a fan of murder mysteries. Um, you know that's a genre that that gets us excited. Obviously, we had a great one back in 2019 with Knives Out, and this looks like it's going to be another sort of star-studded um, murder mystery. Um, and like I said, those those two actors um, are two people who, you know, are two of my favorites that always get me excited. And seeing them play off each other in a sort of possibly buddy cop, you know, setting uh, is something that I uh, am really looking forward to. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things that's been fairly consistent when we've talked about Sear Sharona, which hasn't been too often, to be fair, I think probably the last time we talked about her was Little Women, I guess. Um I think that what she needed most is a role that was going to step her out of this sort of coming of age teen girl type 
role that she's it seems like those have been her two big her two biggest performances and have been sort of a, a centerpiece for her career so far and you know ambitious young rookie cop um or inspector however you want to phrase it into investigating this murder mystery still a period piece still a young up-and-comer that might have some coming-of-age elements but i think this is a step in the right direction to prove that she can do something dramatic but different than you know still dramatic but different than what she's done in other films like lady bird and little women and some of our other stuff that she did when she was even younger so that's i think that's it that's really exciting from my perspective too is to see her stepping out and doing something a little bit different yeah ab- absolutely i mean I, I i think she's proven to be a very versatile actress but to your point maybe recent um her recent projects she's been a little bit pigeonholed yeah i mean Bro- um, brooklyn's the same way ammonite which was she was in last yeah, year I see I that. Think would also fall in that yeah. same um camp as well though that you know that movie was not as well received as the other ones but she's stuck um, in the period scott we got to get it we got to pull her out of the 20th and 18th and 19th centuries you know what speak speak for yourself i'm i'm perfectly fine with where she is and lady bird is an example of what she can do in a contemporary setting for sure. absolutely love lady bird. um but yeah no should be you know a movie that i would expect to come up on our most anticipated of in year of its release here yeah. yeah it's currently i mean it's already been filmed I mean, yeah, I guess if we have um, yeah. those images and stuff, then yeah, they said they said they'd already filmed earlier this year. So I think it's just a matter of holding it until the right time. I guess they think they can't get it out this year. or It's too crowded this year, which I think is understandable. There's just so much stuff coming out. Um, it's a bummer if we wait until Oscar season of next year to get it. Maybe we'll get it earlier. It just depends on, I think, what the ambitions are of Searchlight for this movie. Um, but I look, I'm excited for whenever we do get it. Absolutely. All right, Scott. Well, that should just about do it for this week's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Uh, anything you want to uh, add to our listeners before we uh, sign off? I guess the one thing would be, since we've started to do this on the wrap-up part of our podcast, is that I did recently watch start watching Stranger Things. I watched the first season. You know, I've decided 2021, not only is it the year of, of cinema, but it's also the year of me catching up on TV shows that are still active today that I have not seen yet. So I watched The Outer Banks season one, in anticipation of season two coming out a couple days ago. Uh, for Scott, as I as I promised, Stranger Things is the next thing on my list. I think I'm gonna give Westworld another try. I did watch Succession before Outer Banks. I'm gonna get so I like I said I'm gonna give Westworld another try. Although I fell off that hard like 30 minutes into the first episode, the first time I gave it a try. And then Scott, God willing, The Leftovers is gonna happen later this year. Oh man, well definitely not an ongoing show, but uh, yeah, I mean one of one of my all time favorites. So. Uh, yeah. Let me know when you're you're watching it because I would actually like to do a rewatch along with you. I think that would be great. Be yeah, fun because yeah, the, the ones that I'm still trying to catch up on bef- that are still active that I haven't, you know, Stranger Things as I'm watching right now. I would like to watch Westworld to see if I can get into it again. I might fall off it again. If so, then I probably won't ever go back to it again after that. Um, but it feels like a show that I would that I would like. I just I don't know. Maybe I wasn't in the right headspace. Yeah, the I've first heard time mixed I watched things it. about the latter later seasons of Westworld. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I did. I did hear the first season was sort of the best there, and then Ozark, which is the Jason Bateman, Laura Linney. Um, you know, there's a whole ensemble there that's really strong. I want to watch. Julia I want. Yeah, Julia Garner. I I would really like to watch that because it's final season. I believe it's going to be a two part final season, but it's coming out sometime in the next year. I don't know, ambiguous. But yeah, look, I those are my those are the ones at the top of my list, and uh, Leftovers is is up there too. And I know that's not active, but 26 or 25 episodes, I should be able to get through that. 
Yeah, uh, they're they're heavy. They're very heavy, but um, very, 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 very worthwhile for sure. And I think it's something that you'll really enjoy, if I'm being quite honest. Um, I mean, it's Lindelof, right? I mean, what have I not yeah, enjoyed from David Lindelof? It's Lindelof best, yeah. in my opinion. But um, All right, Scott, uh, that will do it for the episode then. Where can our listeners find you on Twitter? At Shelton 2013 Twitter, Letterboxd. And I am at Scarvy Dent on the same platforms. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Some Like It, Scott. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash pods. Even if you can't support us over there, don't forget to like, rate, review, subscribe, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope you will be back for our next episode of the podcast on which we will be will be reviewing James Gunn's crack at the DC universe with the Suicide Squad. Uh, until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road. Mm-hmm.